Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. For the average American, Easter is a warm and lighthearted holiday that we find on our calendar every single year that's often marked by a few key cultural traditions in our moment today, maybe particularly in 2023, right? So uh, the first of which may be something like awkward family meals together. Like, mom, why do I need to dress up for brunch again? I have a picture, I brought this picture of an awkward family meal interaction for us, right? What I thought was funny about this picture, uh, Easter brunch is going down. I don't know whose face is worse. I have like a zoomed in picture of the three faces in the background. I'm like, I'm not sure whose face is worse. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what she's saying, what that girl across the table is saying, but like their expressions are not very good. Awkward Easter brunches with your family, right? Uh, second marker of the American Easter tradition, tradition is uh, seasonal candies. Right, seasonal candies. Uh, and I think the most polarizing candy on planet Earth is Peeps, our Peeps, right? Yeah. Yep. I brought a picture of Peeps. Yes. Yes. We just did a sermon series, if you were around, on polarization. So it's like maybe we need to do another sermon on Peeps. Like, are you, are you over here? Do you hate them? Do you love them? It's either one or the other. You can't be in the middle, right? <laughs> Peeps. Uh, and then third, of course, slightly frightening, oversized rabbits. Yeah. Yep. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I found this picture, and I'm like, Dad, what were you thinking? Dad, what were you thinking? What were you doing? Scaring your kids. So, yeah, slightly frightening, oversized rabbits, their plastic egg counterparts, right? So, for, for most, uh, Easter... For most Americans, Easter is, is kind of just like any other holiday, maybe minus the bunny part, right? Family, food, rabbits, take out the rabbits. It's about like every other holiday that an American might celebrate. It's just another day. But what is Easter for the Christian? You see, for the Christian, today, approximately 2.6 billion Jesus followers around the world will celebrate and observe Easter Sunday as the most significant day in the entire year. The most significant day in the entire year. And followers of Jesus, the Christian church has been upholding Easter as such, the most important day in the entire year for the last 20 centuries. And so that kind of begs the question, like, if this is not just like any, every other holiday in our culture, then, then what is Easter? Why is it so significant? Why have Christians done this? And of course, the answer is this. Christians believe that on the first Easter morning, a springtime Sunday about 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. That's what Christians believe. And so many of us, as we've been engaged maybe in our culture and maybe some of us have church background, many of us know the Easter story, but really quickly, I just wanna refresh us and remind us, retell the Easter story. History records this. It says this. Jesus of Nazareth was born in a small town in the Middle East to a poor, unmarried teenage mother. 
He was then adopted by his father, Joseph, and picked up the family trade as a craftsman. And around the age of 30, our Bible tells us that Jesus left his carpentry roots and began a public ministry. So Jesus leaves carpentry business, enters into public ministry, and over the next three years, give or take, Jesus traveled around the regions proclaiming the kingdom of God, as he put it. And he would do this through his teaching, his preaching, his performing miracles, and not least of all, claiming that he was the king of the kingdom of God, the one Messiah who had come to rescue and redeem his people. After three years of doing this, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of his day, they'd had enough. Like, Jesus, we're tired of you saying the things that you're saying. We've had enough. One night, Jesus was arrested. He was falsely accused in court. He was brutally beaten and mocked. He was forced to carry a heavy cross upon his back to the top of a hill, and he was nailed to that cross, nails through his hands and through his feet. And on that cross, not only did Jesus suffer the physical pain of crucifixion as he hung, but Jesus suffered the spiritual pain and darkness as he took on God's wrath for the sins of the world. Jesus let out his last words, it is finished, and then died on that cross. And as such, Jesus was buried in a tomb, and his followers were dismayed. But of course, we're here tonight And that's not where the story ends. That's not the end of the story. So I brought with me just a quick eyewitness account as the first humans came to that tomb three days after his death. Here's what the Gospel of Luke says, chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away at the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. Uh, The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. So on Easter Sunday, we celebrate not only the good news that Jesus died for our sins, but we celebrate the good news that God accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead, triumphant over our greatest enemy, death. And now because of Jesus' resurrection, the promise, the invitation he makes to us is that all those who have faith in Jesus can be raised to eternal life with him, as Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Profound words. Profound words. So for the American, Easter is one thing. For the Christian, Easter is a different thing altogether. It's the most significant day in human history. But this brings us to the second question, why Easter, right? And that's where I want to spend the majority of our time here tonight. So why Easter? Here's what we need to understand. The fundamental core of Christianity rests on the reality of the resurrection. The fundamental core of Christianity rests on the reality of the resurrection. Listen, if the resurrection did not happen, then the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. Like like the apostle Paul who followed Jesus, wrote like most of the New Testament, planted a bunch of churches. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians and says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. 
Like we should just pack up shop, go home, because religion makes a terrible hobby if Christ is resurrected from the grave. But if the resurrection did happen, if it's true, then there's no event in all of human history that carries more significance. There's one American scholar whose name I will inevitably mispronounce, I'm not even gonna try, famously is quoted saying this, if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. We should eat, drink, be merry, live it up. You only live once, nothing else matters. But if Christ has risen, <laughs> then that's the only thing that matters. Nothing else in the world matters. Nothing else in the world matters. So tonight for just a few minutes, I'd like to humbly propose that the truth of the resurrection has not only happened and transformed the story of history, but that the truth of the resurrection has happened and it also holds the potential to transform your story and my story. So as we get into this, I wanna I want do something a little bit different tonight. I know a lot of us come from different places. Maybe some of us here in this space have been following Jesus for years. Maybe some of us uh, kind of come to church on Easter, but we're not really sure what that's all about. Maybe some of us are like, I don't really like Jesus, but you know, his people, they're okay sometimes. So I'm, I'm here, kind of got dragged here by a friend. Wherever you are, um, I, I think I submit to you this, that, that Jesus can change you. He has something to offer you, and he can speak to you. So this is, this is gonna look a little different tonight, but in order to show us how, what, what I actually wanna do is I wanna examine, do kind of a character study, if you will, of three individuals, three characters who surrounded Jesus during the Easter narrative. Because these three different people, who were real historical people, came from very different places, similar to us in this room tonight. And so what I want to do is dive into who they were, how Jesus met them, and how Jesus transformed them. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to see who they were before they met Jesus and experienced the reality of who he was, his life, death, and resurrection, um, and who they became after Jesus, and who, who they became after they beheld his life, death, and resurrection. And, and what we're going to do tonight... So, Again, kind of different. Is I'm actually gonna have a few owners of our church, like members of our church here come out and read the passages from the Bible, kind of representing these characters. So, sound good? Okay. Okay, our first character, we'll get straight into it, uh, is a guy named Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Uh, Peter, if you know uh, the, the story at all, Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and was in his inner circle of disciples. Uh, Jesus first met Peter, he's kind of a blue-collar fisherman. Jesus shows up on the beach where he's fishing, and he's like, Peter, you're not very good at fishing. Come here. And, uh, and Peter joins him, comes up, and Jesus invites him to drop everything and to stop being a fisher of fish and to start being a fisher of men. And, and Peter accepts that invitation, literally leaves his job, leaves his home, leaves his community, and gives up everything to follow Jesus. And Peter rides with Jesus for the next three years. However... Good Friday comes. So Good Friday comes, Jesus is arrested, and uh, he's betrayed, and is brought before the authorities. And what's going on here is, is Jesus is brought before this trial, and, and Peter's kind of keeping a distance, right? Stuff's not looking good, so good for his rabbi. Peter's keeping his distance, and, uh, and as he sits among the rustled crowds in the night, anxiously waiting to see what would happen next, a, a few people begin to approach Peter, and they're like, hey, aren't you that guy who's like with Jesus? I've seen you. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? And two times, one and two times, Peter denies having any association with Jesus. Finally, Peter has a third interaction, and he breaks down. So we read about this in Luke chapter 
22. It'll be on the screen as we read. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. So, so we read this and you almost feel anxious as you read those words. You think Peter has been one of Jesus' closest friends and then in this moment, Peter denies having any association with Jesus and, and you just imagine he turns and he locks eyes with his rabbi. You, you, you like begin to feel anxious as you get the sense of shame that Peter must have felt. The shame. You see, prior to this moment, Peter was devoted to Jesus with like a capital D, right? Like just a few verses ago, Peter's like, Jesus, I'm gonna die for you. I'll cut somebody's ear off. I will go, I'll go the distance with you, Jesus. And then he denies him three times in public. Right, when the stakes were raised, when he began to see that association with Jesus may cost him something, he denied him. He denied him. So, so maybe like Peter, your story with God involves shame. Maybe it involves shame. Maybe you are ashamed of past decisions that you've made and you wonder if you'll ever again be able to experience redemption and freedom. Maybe you find yourself more concerned of the opinions of others than the opinion of God. And, and so there have been moments in your life where you've been afraid to associate with Jesus because of what it might cost you in your status. What it might cost you at your job. Like, if I'm faithful to Jesus at my job, it might cost me my job. Maybe you've been afraid of the fact that it might cost you your security to associate with Jesus. And, and because you've lived out of fear, you're now, like, afraid of what God thinks of you. Maybe your story involves shame. And so may, maybe you come into the room tonight, maybe you come into the story like Peter the ashamed. And the question you're asking is, can Jesus transform my shame? Can he? So our second character, that's our first character. Our second character is known as Mary Magdalene. Mary. <clears throat> and Mary has her first interaction with Jesus in Luke chapter eight. Uh, at that point, if you go back to Luke chapter 8, she's infamous in her community for being known as the woman who's tormented with demons. And so, crazy moment, Jesus shows up. All, all the text says is that Jesus just cast the seven demons out of her. Like, don't know what it looks like, but Jesus is that powerful. He invites Mary, says, come on, follow me, give up everything. Mary does it. And Mary goes on to be one of the most fa uh, faithful and enduring disciples. She even stays with Jesus up until the moment where he was crucified. But Mary, like the rest, she, she mourns the loss of her friend that day on Good Friday. Uh, on Saturday, it would have been customary for Mary's culture, um, for, for, for those of Mary's culture, to, to rest on that day. And so Saturday they rest. On Sunday, Mary makes arrangements to visit Jesus' grave along with a few other women to honor and prepare his body with burial spices. But as they arrive, Mary is the first to discover the empty tomb. She's the first to see the empty tomb. And so I think for us, you know, we kind of know the, the entirety of the story, but for us, we think, oh, Mary must have saw the empty tomb and she's just like jacked. Like her immediate reaction must have been, he's risen from the dead. But that's, that's not what happened. 
That's, that's not what happened. Mary's first thought was not that something supernatural would, would happen, but her first thought was that something very natural had happened and that someone had actually stolen Jesus' body. Um, and and this, this kind of came as a surprise to her. Andy Stanley said, nobody expected nobody. I had to, I'm sorry, I had to. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Nobody expected nobody to be there. Um, and, and for Mary, this was like added insult to injury, right? She's been grieving the loss of her friend, and now she comes to the tomb. The body's not there. She reasons, somebody must have stolen Jesus' body to like desecrate his body. What is happening? Well, we, we read what happens next in, in, John chapter, uh, in John chapter 20. Again, as Mary's gone to the tomb, she finds it empty, and she begins to have this emotional moment. Read this here. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Mary's kind of at her breaking point. She's just wrecked, she's undone, she's filled with grief. She's filled with sadness, even doubt, right? For the last few years, she had placed her hope in Jesus' promise of being the Messiah, the one who would would put an end to all the evil in the world, and now it seems as if evil itself has overcome the one who she thought was the Messiah. And to make matters worse, she couldn't even honor him in his death. It was as if the rug was swept out from underneath her feet. So maybe for you, you are in a place that sounds a lot like Mary. (laughs) You are experiencing something similar. You're being filled with grief, with sadness, maybe with doubt in your life right now. Maybe you've experienced a a deep and real loss in your life. Maybe you've received an unexpected blow of bad news. Maybe severe emotional pain accompanies that, uh, perhaps like real anxiety or depression. Maybe, maybe some days, and maybe let's be more real, like maybe yesterday, you're, you're in a place right now where you're like, I don't know if I can keep going anymore. Like it's gotten really, really old to continue to try to hope in something only to have that hope taken away from me. What's the point of even hoping anymore? Maybe you come into the story like Mary the Griefed. The question you're asking is, can Jesus do something about my grief? Can he do something about my sadness? Maybe you're not only wondering where's God in my sadness and doubt, you're actually wondering where's God at all? So Mary's our second character, our third character, our final character. Uh, The Bible does not give a name to all, all we know this final character as uh, is uh, as the thief, the thief. And the gospel accounts record that Jesus of Nazareth was not crucified alone on that hilltop outside of the walls of Jerusalem, um, but that he's actually surrounded by two criminals on, uh, on either side of him. So uh, th- this moment, right, where, where the three men are, are being hung, they've been crucified, they're, they're all facing death, one of the criminals begins mocking Jesus, And as the men hang there, as they're dying, we read about what happens next. In Luke chapter 23. 
One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. So again, two, two criminals are there on either side of Jesus. And, and this one we're kind of focusing on is the second one in this passage, the thief. And, and the thief does not spend his last breaths cursing Jesus, mocking Jesus, making requests of Jesus. Rather, this thief sees the scandal of the setting. He sees, I'm hanging here on a cross, and Jesus is next to me, hanging here on a cross, but one is not like the other. I deserve what I have coming to me, this capital punishment at the hand of the Roman Empire, this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. He deserves none of this. See, the thief knows that he's guilty, that he's sinful, that he's fallen short, and he's failed. And the thief has come to grips with his own broken condition, and he assumes that he's too far gone. So maybe you enter into the story like the thief. Maybe you too are painfully aware of your own flaws and shortcomings and you've become convinced that you're too messed up, you're too far gone, you're too broken, you're too sinful, you're too messy, you're too guilty for God to ever forgive you, let alone love you. And maybe you've actually had thoughts like, I deserve, I I deserve all the bad stuff that's been coming to me in my life. I, I don't deserve forgiveness or I'm unlovable or I don't deserve a second chance. If that's you, you come into the story like the guilty thief. And the question for you is, can Jesus do something about my guilt? So our three characters, we have Peter the ashamed, Mary the grieved, the guilty thief. Now, listen, I know this isn't going to be perfect, but I wanna ask you a question, just a time for your your reflection. Um, Out of which characters do you find yourself identifying with most tonight? Are, are, these, are there one of these characters and their situations and the places they're in in their lives that you identify with, that, that hits home for you right now? Which one is it? As you think about that, again, as we said in the beginning, this isn't the end of the story. Their stories don't end where we left off. Each of these individuals had another encounter, another moment with Jesus that we begin to see things clarified for them and how they view him. They experienced his resurrection power and they were never the same. So we'll quickly see how each plays out. But again, as we get there, think, which of these hits home with me the most right now in my life? Think about that as we continue going here. So again, back to Peter. Peter the ashamed. Peter the ashamed. So recap, Peter denies Jesus three times. He goes outside of the area where all the people are gathered and he weeps bitterly. What the Bible also tells us is that Peter doesn't just have this this moment where his shame brings him outside of the court area, but we realize that his shame actually brought him back to his trade of being a fisherman. Peter gives everything up and goes back to the fishing nets, goes back to his struggling craft. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, it's actually like one of my favorite moments in the entire Bible in John chapter 21. Um, Peter, again, goes back to his fishing roots and uh, apparently is still not a great fisherman because still not catching much. And after his resurrection, Jesus shows up on the beach. He just like appears on the beach. 
And there's this moment where Jesus calls to Peter and, and Peter looks out from the water and he's like, no way, it cannot be who I think that is. Peter comes to Jesus and, and, and we kind of read this and we think, man, Jesus is about to like drill into him, right? Like we think like, Peter, like the moment I needed you the most, you bailed on me. You like, <laughs> you, you couldn't even say that you were one of my followers, but, but that's not what happens. Rather, what happens is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ cooks Peter a breakfast. <laughs> That's what happens. And so if we read about it down in verse 15 in John chapter 21, Peter, Jesus having a breakfast together in the interaction afterwards. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Right, after they eat this meal together, they have this exchange, and we, we begin to see that Jesus, um, Jesus kind of reflects each denial that Peter has with an extension of his own grace. So we see three denials of Jesus, and then three repeated moments where Jesus extends his grace to Peter. And here's what's so key, friends. Jesus does not only, please hear me, Jesus did not only forgive Peter, he does. But, but do you see this, that, that Jesus bestows honor upon Peter. He bestows honor upon him. Jesus takes Peter the ashamed and makes him Peter the honored. What happens is Peter denies Jesus three times and then Jesus comes back post-resurrection and not only forgives him but gives him a significant responsibility. What Jesus is saying in this passage that uh, is this, like, Peter, I'm entrusting you to lead my people. When Jesus says, feed my sheep, he's talking about his body, his church. Feed my people, feed my sheep. Jesus is entrusting Peter with responsibility in his kingdom. So if you're like Peter, if you're ashamed over previous decisions, or, or if you're ashamed over cowardice and failure, then Jesus has a message for you, and his message is this. My grace is sufficient for you, and I want you in my circle. Like, I want you in my circle. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. Though you may be ashamed because of his sinless life, death, and resurrection, Jesus offers you a seat at his table to be a member of his royal family. If you come into the story like Peter, the offer that Jesus is making you is to turn your shame into honor. Do you get that? Okay, so that's Peter. What about Mary? What happens with Mary? So as we saw, maybe more than any other character in the narrative, we have, we have Mary the grieved. Mary is diving deep into her despair. There's emotion involved. She felt trapped by grief and sorrow. She doubted maybe she was wrong about Jesus altogether and it was time to give up, but her story doesn't end there. It does not end there. Look at how Jesus meets her as we continue in John chapter 20, starting in verse 14. 
At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Profound moment, right? She thinks she's interacting with a gardener, and then she's like, oh my gosh, Jesus himself is interacting with me. Jesus is interacting with me. And, and what we see, um, is Jesus like mad at her doubts? Is Jesus upset with her that she was grieving? No. No, we see that Jesus is incredibly consistent with his teaching uh, pre his life, or pre his death and resurrection. Like his most famous um, words of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Jesus draws near to her in her lowest moments and brought her living hope. In her lowest moment, in the face of the resurrection, everything sad for Mary in this moment was coming untrue. You see, in the resurrection of Jesus means that no matter how dark, how broken, how tragic things get, there's always hope. Because of Christ, death, death itself does not have the final word. So again, just for, just for a moment, like, just, just think about this. Um, as we think about this idea of hope, and, and Mary's hope was in something that, that she, she didn't know uh, was coming to an end, but, but Jesus comes back and, and reveals what was actually happening. If your best shot is putting your hope in something that will die, or, or putting your hope in something that will just kind of like fade away, rust away in a few hundred years, then that is not much of a hope. That's like a big cruise ship trying to anchor itself on a singular pebble of sand. What's the point of hoping? But if there's one who's actually triumphed over death itself, who's alive and who will reign forevermore, then there is an indestructible hope, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And that's the kind of hope that can bring joy even in the, in the midst of sadness. So Jesus takes Mary the grieved and makes her Mary the joyful. Mary the grieved. Mary the joyful. So if you're like Mary tonight, if you're entering into the story like Mary a little bit, here's what you need to hear. You need to hear this. Jesus is not repulsed by your doubts. Jesus is not repulsed by your grieving. Jesus is not repulsed by your real emotions. You know what Jesus is repulsed by? Jesus is repulsed by people who think that they've got everything put together. Jesus is repulsed by people who think that they don't need any kind of help at all. What we know is this, life is hard. Sometimes, if we're honest, life looks a whole lot like hell. It looks a whole lot like hell. And the Bible says that's because sin is into the world and things aren't the way God intended them to be. So bring what is hard to Jesus. That's the invitation. He can take your doubts. He can take your grief. He wants to meet you in those things and to be your everything in the midst of those things. Only he can offer as a hope that cannot be thwarted by any evil 
that we know. So, so hear me say this. I'm not saying, hey, come to Jesus, bring your doubts to Jesus, bring your grief to Jesus, and he'll make everything immediately better for you. I'm not saying, hey, come to Jesus and he'll give you more money or he'll prevent you from ever getting sick again. But what I am saying is this, come to Jesus and he promises his enduring presence and love. His enduring presence and love that will stay with you even as you enter into low moments in your life. And he promises a future where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes in the end. A guy named Randy Alcorn said it better than I ever could. He said this, for those in Christ, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For those who are in Christ and who have the awaited future hope of the resurrection of eternal life, this life is as hard as it will ever get. That is a glorious hope for us. And, and then he kind of makes a, a beckoning call to those who aren't in Christ. He says, for those not in Christ, it's the closest they'll come to heaven. Because yes, this world is hard and there is hell in this world, there's evil in this world, but there's also beauty in this world. We also see common grace in this world. We also see evidences and glimpses of that everywhere. So, so where is your hope? That's the question. Finally, the thief. What happens with the thief? The thief recognized his guilt. He recognized that he deserved to be on that cross. He believed that he was too far gone. He was too messed up, too guilty for anything but death. But in some of his final breaths, Jesus actually responds to him. We see this in verse 40 here. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Stunning passage. Stunning passage. This should like shock us. Like, and if you see what's going on here, like, wait a minute, Jesus. You, you, mean, you mean to say that that's your answer for the guy who deserved capital punishment at the hand of the Roman Empire? Like, Jesus, are, are you sure who you're talking to? He, he's not a good person. Like, him? Don't only good people go to heaven? That's the question we, we ask when we get to this passage. And Jesus shows the thief, and by extension, he shows us, no matter how bad and wretched you are, no matter how grievous your sin is, you are never too far gone. You're never too far gone. Right? Every other religious figure in history, every other religion basically summed up says this, hey, if you wanna get to God, if you wanna be right with God, then you've gotta be good enough. If you want to be right with God, you've got to be holy enough. You've got to be righteous enough. You've got to be obedient enough. You've got to be rich enough. You have to be good-looking enough, or you have to be poor enough, or you have to be spiritual enough. You have to pray enough. And Jesus comes and says, nope, not at all. In fact, you can't be good enough. That's the whole point. That's the reason I came. That's why I had to go to the cross. You can't do it. So I had to do it for you. Jesus takes the guilty thief and makes him a righteous saint on the spot. How? <laughs> like, okay, why this criminal and not the other guy? All three of them are in the same position. Why this particular criminal and not the other criminal? The answer is this, because the thief had faith. 
the thief had faith. The thief recognized that Jesus was different. The thief recognized that he was not guilty. The thief recognized that Jesus was pure. The thief recognized that Jesus was a king of a kingdom that was not of this world. And so the thief stopped trying to save himself and by faith entrusted himself to the Savior who would come to rescue him. So, friend, are you filled with guilt over your sin? Listen, if you are, you don't need good advice. Good advice will kill you. You need good news. And the greatest news ever is that Jesus, who is not guilty at all, who is God who would come to us, died like a guilty sinner in your place because of his love for you, and he rose again. So, friend, if you're like the thief, if you're like the guilty thief, overwhelmed with the, the guilt of your sin, then stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to save yourself and entrust yourself to the Savior. He died to forgive you, to wash you clean, and to call you a righteous saint and invite you into paradise with him now and forever. So Jesus received this thief with joy. What's crazy about this passage is when the thief closed his eyes, when he breathed his final breaths, he would open them again to be in the presence of his loving God. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Stunning. So in conclusion, Jesus takes our shame, he turns it into honor. Jesus takes our grief, he turns it into joy. Jesus takes our doubts, he turns it into assurance. Jesus takes our guilt, he turns it into righteousness. No matter where you are at today, Jesus is alive right now. Like he's, he's here, reigning and ruling. His word says he's among us. And I submit to you, he's beckoning you to come that you might have your brokenness, your pain, your sin taken care of and redeemed by him. So my question is, where are you at tonight? Where are you at? I know for me, these last few weeks, I've been feeling a bit like Mary. A bit like Mary. Nothing crazy. It's just been a few weeks where life feels really hard. Been a, been a few weeks where um, sometimes, like, I, I love what I get to do. I love getting to give my life to ministry, getting to pastor our church, but sometimes it feels hard. Sometimes leadership feels hard. Sometimes ministry feels hard. In the past couple of weeks, I just, I wrote a few things down. Um, I watched a really close friend of mine drop out of ministry altogether. Real close friend of mine. I looked up to, been walking with Jesus for the last 10 years together in some ways done with ministry, stepped down. The last couple weeks, I sat across the table from a friend as he processed the idea of divorcing his wife. I sat with him, trying to listen, trying to plead with him. A few weeks back from that, I sat across the table from another friend whose marriage just ended. I've watched people make foolish decisions that will alter their futures despite the wisdom given to them. I see conflict driving wedges between people that I love. I see relational tension and strife sometimes in our church and I wish I could stop it. Sometimes I don't know what to do. And I turn on the news, I scroll on my phone online and I see a moment where six people are dead because of a shooter at a school in Nashville. The other day I had this moment where I was in, uh, in our boys' room, 
in their bedroom and I was just sitting on the ground, just watching them play. And uh, as I just watched them play, I started to think about all these things and I started to, to feel like Mary. <laughs> and me and God had a moment right there. So I was sitting on the floor in my kid's bedroom. And what, is, what I said to the Lord was this, God, can you spare them from all of this? God, can you please spare them from all of the evil that I'm experiencing, that so many people are experiencing in parts of the world that I don't even know about? There's so much evil going on. Is there an end to it? Can you do anything about it? God, this feels like hell. How can I keep going? How is it that I'm supposed to to raise these kids? I don't know how to do any of this. Is there any hope? As I'm sitting there on the floor in my kid's bedroom, I start grappling with hope. Will more, will, will more money fix these problems? Will more money bring about hope? No, try that. Will better education systems bring about any hope? No, we've seen how that's gone in the past. Will government policy bring about any lasting hope? No, <laughs> no. Will distracting myself provide lasting hope? No, will numbing myself provide lasting hope? No. So in that moment on the floor in my kid's bedroom, only the hope found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ anchored me. It became evidently clear. And what I came to realizing is this, because Jesus is making all things new and will one day return with fire in his eyes to end all suffering and evil and sin forever, to grab his saints and to bring his saints home. I can rest in that. That's enough for me. The good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus offered is, offers is this, a forgiven past, a secured future, and a present hope. So friends, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And he can change everything for you. My question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Only Jesus can do something about your shame. Only Jesus can do something about your doubts. Only Jesus can do something about your grief. Only Jesus can do something about your guilt. Question tonight is, will you let him? Will you let him? So in a moment, the band's gonna come back out. We're gonna continue to respond by singing together. But I know many of us are in different places here tonight, as you said at the beginning. Maybe some of us are currently in a place where we've been following Jesus for years, but we're wrestling with him right now. And so we need to process a little bit what it looks like to bring our doubt or our grief to Jesus. Or maybe for some of us, we're not sure where we're at with Jesus, so we're like clear, we're, we're just not followers of Jesus. We're not united with him. And so I want to make it clear the invitation is on the table from Jesus. God loves you, and he loves you to the degree that though you've sinned against him, he has made a peace offering with you in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to us when we were in our brokenness and our sin, lived a perfectly sinless life, died a sin-bearing death, and rose again in victory. And we know that God accepted his sacrifice because he rose again. So the invitation for you is, will you trust him? Will you let him tonight? What's so great about Jesus is that he has a church, he has a people, and so you don't have to do it alone. So will you let him? Maybe that looks like grabbing somebody around you, 
Maybe it looks like coming and talking to somebody in the back, grabbing one of us out in the lobby. Will you let him? I'll pray for us.